0: Greetings all, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassis Belly Project. Again, sorry for making all of you wait a month for a new episode, so here's another one within a week. I told you I'd make it up to you. Anyway, in this episode, we will continue to the fall of France and its aftermath. Don't forget to like the podcast on SoundCloud, or review it on iTunes. And of course, visit the blog at CassisBellyPodcast.com slash II. That's casusbellypodcast.com slash worldwar and the number two. Now, let's begin episode six, A Miracle in a Sea of Disasters. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which... We must prepare. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. On the morning of May 15th, with the German armor sprinting toward the Channel Coast, Paul Renault, the French Prime Minister, called Winston Churchill to tell him they were defeated and that the front had been broken at Sedan. Churchill was incredulous. Surely, he asked, it can't have happened so soon. He tried to reason with Renaud and remind him that offensives must halt. They must resupply and consolidate. After a brief silence, Renaud simply repeated, We are defeated. We have lost the battle. Churchill had only been Prime Minister for five days. The next day, Churchill convened with Gamlin, Renaud, and Daladier in Paris. They had met to discuss the progress of the war and how to halt the German advance. At least that is what Churchill believed they would be discussing. For until this point, he was not fully aware of the disaster the French found themselves in. In reality, all there was to discuss was how quickly France would fall. He asked Gamelin about the French strategic reserve, where fresh troops were located. Gamelin, downcast, simply replied that there weren't any. They had all been committed to the dial plan. Perhaps sensing Churchill's disbelief, Gamelin began to describe what actions the French army was taking. They were transferring eight divisions from the Maginot Line and bringing up another eight from Africa, to shore up what Gamelin called the Sedan Salient. He still did not grasp the ability of armored formations to maneuver quickly. For his part, Churchill pledged six more British fighter squadrons, the most he could offer without endangering the island. He must have felt some guilt for the lack of British contribution. There were only ten divisions on the continent. Hardly enough to make a difference. All the while, French officials were burning records and government documents. They were preparing the city for occupation. Meanwhile, to the east, the war raged on. The panzers were moving west to the coast and experiencing unimaginable success. Almost inexplicably, though, Hitler would order their halt on May 17th. The generals on the ground were aghast. Why had they been halted? The enemy surrounded, demoralized, and low on supplies. Now is the time to strike. No one knows for sure why Hitler ordered the halt, but several theories abound. First, some believe the halt was made out of a misplaced apprehension over the threat of Allied counterattack. He believed the southern flank of Army Group A was exposed, not confident in the following infantry division's ability to hold the flanks. Some believe that he thought the Panzer divisions in much worse shape than they were due to the marshy terrain in Flanders where he had served in the First World War. Then there are the non-military theories. Perhaps he wanted to spare the British expeditionary force in order to demonstrate goodwill toward the British. Whatever his reasons, when Hermann Goering promised that he could finish off the defenders around Dunkirk from the air, Hitler was convinced that a halt was due. So Hitler made his first great blunder of the war. Rather than tightening the noose and destroying the BEF and the portion of the French army trapped around Dunkirk, Hitler allowed them to hold out and evacuate to England. The escape from Dunkirk ended up being one of the great chapters in the Second World War and provided the French an opportunity to redeem their honor. Until May 20th, British and French planners still believed that a counterattack may be possible and so developed plans for the forces north of the German advance to fight their way south to the Somme. With Belgian troops available, this may have seemed plausible, but with their numbers diminishing every day and their capitulation imminent, British planners knew the ring was tightening. So on the 20th, Churchill secretly instructed the Admiralty to begin drawing up plans to evacuate Dunkirk. For the next two weeks, British and French troops would fight doggedly to defend the perimeter and on May 26th, Operation Dynamo officially began. General Alan Brooke was in overall command of the operation, assisted by his lieutenants, Generals Harold Alexander and Bernard Law Montgomery. Brooke worked tirelessly to set the conditions for success. He moved units to plug holes and rearranged lines to quickly adapt to the ever-evolving tactical environment. It's incredible what he achieved, as even he admitted that he was nearly at his wit's end, but had simply become numb to disaster. But with the perimeter in place, he began extracting his men on May 27th, and just in time, too, for the Belgian army would be dissolved the next day with the abdication of King Leopold III. Despite the fact that Hitler had ordered a halt of his panzers, the Luftwaffe continued to harass the Allied forces trapped within the perimeter. The morning of the 27th, the Luftwaffe firebombed Dunkirk, killing the thousands of men seeking refuge in the basements and cellars of the town's buildings. There was no place to go other than the beaches, where men were exposed to the full fury of German pilots. To their astonishment, though, the German bombs proved fairly ineffective in the soft sand of the beach. Rather than exploding above ground, the bombs simply buried themselves deep in the sand before detonating, allowing the beach itself to absorb most of the blast's energy. The cry of the Stuka's whistles and the sight of smoke rising out of the sea still infuriated the men, though. Why was there no fighter cover? Where was the RAF? The truth was that the RAF was fighting just as doggedly as the men defending the perimeter. The entirety of the Metropolitan Air Force's 25 squadrons were engaged in nearly endless fighting for air superiority. They faced stiff odds, but through tenacity and tireless fighting, they slowly beat back the Germans. This was little consolation to the men on the ground though, who could only guess at what the RAF was up to. Instead, they looked to the sea for comfort and the many naval and civilian vessels upon which they would find their rescue. Fortunately, the Royal Navy already had a register of civilian vessels that could be pressed into service if the need arose. Initially intended to be used as a minesweeping force, The register wound up being incredibly useful in organizing an evacuation armada. And an armada it was. It consisted of nearly 900 craft of every shape and size, 650 of which were civilian. They consisted of personal yachts, fishing boats, ferries, lifeboats, fireboats, tugboats, and essentially anything that could successfully cross the channel. In an inspiring display of bravery under fire, The men of the BEF lined up and waited patiently on the beaches to be picked up by the waiting boats and ferried across the channel. Under the constant assault by the Luftwaffe, the men sternly waited in line for their rescue. As each man was lifted up into a boat, another would step forward and patiently wait his turn. Any man who cracked under the relentless German dive bombing was shot. Panic could not be allowed to spread. But in a miraculous change of fortune, the weather turned on the night of the 27th. Where during most of the day the weather had been fair and clear, rain and cloud moved in, grounding the Luftwaffe. This was not only a godsend for the BEF, but also for the ships and boats in the channel. During the 27th, the Germans had managed to sink three British destroyers, five passenger ships, and damaged seven more destroyers. Had the Luftwaffe not been grounded, who knows how many vessels would have been lost, and how many men would have met their end in the cold channel waters. As the pocket collapsed, British commanders hoped that perhaps 50,000 men could be evacuated. On May 31st alone, 150,000 men were pulled to safety from the shore, and in the end, they managed to rescue almost 200,000 British troops and a further 140,000 French, Belgian, and Polish men. On June 1st, the French took overall command of the defense, and on June 4th, Operation Dynamo officially concluded. The French fought courageously to defend Dunkirk, and if were not for their valor, perhaps the corps of the British Army would not have escaped. The men who escaped would go on to rebuild the British Army for the coming battles. The young subalterns and lieutenants would be commanding battalions by the war's end, and the generals Brooke, Alexander, and Montgomery would all be field marshals. Had this cadre been captured, or worse killed, the army would have been gutted, and who's to say how it would have fared in Africa, Italy, and eventually Normandy. But the battle for France was not over. To the west and south, the German columns were breaking through the Wagon line, so named for General Maxime Wagon, who had replaced Gamelin as overall commander of French forces, and were moving on Paris. Wegon had hoped that his men would establish a defensive front along the Somme, but by June twelfth, the Germans had broken through, and before them surged a mob of poilus, colonials, and civilians. Blue-coated soldiers threw down their weapons and abandoned their equipment and joined the hordes of refugees fleeing the German army. The roads were clogged with destroyed vehicles and littered with materiel worth millions of francs. The army was melting away. They were all heading for Paris, and the French soldiers began to behave more like invaders themselves. Discipline was but a distant memory now, and they proceeded to loot the countryside for all it was worth. Drunken soldiers took what they liked from shattered storefronts and loaded up on enough liquor to float a battleship. Men could be found in every state of glorious drunken beastliness, whether it be fighting over loot, joyriding in abandoned vehicles, gorging themselves on cheese, or simply engaging in wanton vandalism. Even the officers joined in, pardoning themselves with the excuse that nothing should be left to the coming Germans. As the hordes of riotous soldiers and stunned civilians surged towards Paris, the government was already making for tours, where they hoped they could hold out. With France collapsing, the other dictators of Europe chose to seek their spoils as well. Mussolini brought Italy into the war on June 10th, when it was eminently clear that France was done for. He openly and unapologetically wanted to be recognized as a belligerent when peace negotiations were made. In the Baltic and Eastern Europe, Stalin used the tumult in the west to hide his takeover of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. He also used the opportunity to peel away Bukovina and Bessarabia from Romania. With all attention on German aggression, no one noticed his small conquests. As their country collapsed around them, Churchill met with the French War Council outside Orléans. There, he urged them to fight for Paris, to force the Germans to engage in the absolutely deadly chaos that is urban combat, and failing that, to hold up in Brittany, where he promised he would keep them supplied but they were defeated both on the battlefield and in spirit. Pétain, who had become the Vice President of the War Council on the same day that Gamelin was dismissed, reminded Churchill that the French had no reserve. There were simply no men available to mount these last stands that he imagined. Pétain, the great war hero of Verdun, now in his 80s, was already contemplating collaboration. He was ashamed, but he felt the weight of history and fate to be on Hitler's side. Sensing Patin's wavering spirit, Churchill met with Admiral Darlan. The French fleet was mighty, and if it were to be absorbed by the Axis powers, the combined fleets of Germany, Italy, and France could easily challenge the Royal Navy. He needed to ensure that Darlan would not allow the French fleet to fall into enemy hands. Darlan agreed. Surrendering the fleet was out of the question. The question was hardly resolved, though. The writing was on the wall. Every scheme that Churchill concocted to carry on the fight on the continent, the French rebuffed. A defense of Paris was impossible and inhumane. A Breton redoubt was not feasible. Churchill even suggested that France and Britain merge, that the French government rule from London, and that their armies, navies, air forces, and general capacity to wage war be combined. The French detested this idea. Who were they kidding, though? The choice at this point was between being an occupied territory of the German Reich or a dominion of the British Empire. The French, urged by Pétain, wanted simply to capitulate. They had no fight left in them. So on June 21st, 1940, Hitler descended on the Compiègne Forest where he drafted terms and the next morning the French government boarded the very same train car in which the Armistice of 1918 had been signed to face their humiliation. France was to be split in two. The North would be governed directly by Germany and become an occupied territory. The South would become a puppet state, run by Pétain's government from Vichy. The French were to leave the fleet B, and all prisoners of war would remain in captivity. As the representatives of the French government, led by General Hunsinger, entered the railway car, Hitler did not stand to greet them. After the terms were read and signed, Hitler stood, gave the Nazi salute, and walked out without saying a word. The fall of France was a perfect storm of circumstance. A postmodern armored strike force was pitted against an aged and ill-equipped behemoth. The German army was nimble, quick, and smart, whereas the French army was slow, lumbering, and dumb. And Britain now stood alone against Germany. Hitler's empire was the greatest Europe had seen since that of Rome. France had essentially surrendered unconditionally, and the United States still had its head buried in the sand, despite the president's best efforts to prepare the country for war. The Great British Empire would have to fight on alone for the time being, and they would do so in the air, on land, and at sea. Soon, German and Italian troops would move on Egypt, the U-boat war was already taking shape, and the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, was only a month away. If that was not bad enough, in the early summer of 1940, things appeared even more grim to the Englishmen staring across the channel. Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of the British Isles, was taking shape and the British were apprehensive. The awkward question of the French fleet hung in the air ever more heavily now that France had been defeated. Under the new government in Vichy, Darlan had become Patan's new naval minister, and so technically had not surrendered the fleet to the Kriegsmarine. This was hardly acceptable to Churchill, though. Fortunately, much of the fleet was stationed at British ports alongside Royal Navy vessels in Plymouth and Portsmouth, but also in Alexandria. The decision was made to simply seize the vessels in British ports on July 3rd. There were minimal casualties, and most of the French sailors agreed to continue to man their vessels under the Union Jack. The remainder of the French fleet at Oran was another matter, though. The British could not simply seize those, so Churchill sent an ultimatum to the French government. They had three choices, place their fleet under command of the Royal Navy, but continue to fly their colors, send the fleet to British ports with skeleton crews to be repatriated later or sail the fleet to a neutral location to be tended by a third party. Barring any of those, the British would be compelled to sink the fleet through offensive action. Darlon was a proud man, and fiercely Anglophobic. Not that he cared much for the Germans, but his antipathy toward his former allies prevented him from allowing French ships to sail under English orders. He reiterated that under no circumstances would his fleet fall into German hands, but he had no real ability to guarantee that. So the evening of July 3rd, the British fleet briefly engaged the remaining French fleet. Several French battleships were destroyed or severely damaged, but the skirmishes were mostly short and relatively bloodless. The portion of the fleet already in the West Indies was decommissioned and placed in the stewardship of the United States. Most of the French sailors were unwilling to put up stiff resistance against the English. What had they left to fight for anyway? Across the Atlantic, Americans were watching events unfold sympathetically, but critically. Though the country remained steadfastly pacifist and isolationist, the public sympathies were overwhelmingly with the Allies. America was a democracy, after all, and few could much identify with the strutting, warmongering conquerors in Germany and Italy. This was an era when humility was still considered a virtue in American politics. In one of his regular addresses to the nation, Roosevelt said, This nation will remain a neutral nation but I cannot ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. FDR himself was obviously not neutral in thought. He did everything he could to incrementally prepare the country for war. In 1939, he increased the size of the active army by 17,000 men and raised the National Guard to its maximum manpower of 200,000. Additionally, he authorized the Army Air Corps to increase 6,000 aircraft. A 17,000-man increase to the regular army would hardly provoke a glance in Europe, but it was all Roosevelt could do to nudge his country in the right direction. There were other roads to assistance, though. The first step was to open up arms and munitions exports on a cash basis. Ostensibly a neutral step because it gave Axis powers just as much ability to purchase as allies, but in reality, it greatly favored the Allies because the Germans had no way of reaching American ports. As German aggression ramped up, though, Roosevelt found his hand growing ever stronger. After the invasion of France, he was able to ask Congress for 50,000 military aircraft and additional defense appropriation of $900 million. The fall of France pushed Roosevelt to take yet a stronger stance. He began what led to the Lend-Lease program, in which American equipment and material were transferred to the Allies, and in September of 1940, the first and only peacetime draft in American history was authorized. Just because FDR was emboldened and successful doesn't mean he wasn't fought at every step, though. The America First movement was powerful and sought to stop every move he made. It was led by the America First Committee, which formed in September of 1940, just as conscription was approved. Its ranks swelled to 800,000 and included Peace Corps founder Sergeant Shriver and future presidents Gerald Ford and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It was a strange alliance of true blue pacifist Quakers, left-wing isolationists, right-wing nationalists, immigrants who still sympathize with their countries of origin, and even the German-American Bund, the American Nazi Party. Despite their protests, though, America was preparing for war, and just in time. The army was increased to 1.4 million men under arms, and a billion dollars in spending was authorized to construct new ships and aircraft. America was mobilizing under the guise of hemisphere defense. Even the non-interventionists had to see the wisdom in that. German aircraft based in France could reach the American continents, and U-boats were already prowling the North Atlantic. In his most controversial and openly interventionist move, Roosevelt arranged for 50 American destroyers to be transferred to the Royal Navy in exchange for bases throughout the Caribbean. It would still be over a year before America would realize just how prescient FDR had been. As America was arming, Hitler was contemplating his invasion of Britain. He had been hopeful that a peace could be reached with the British, but those ideas were extremely optimistic. The various British peoples did not feel the same affinity for Germany that Hitler had imagined they would. Sure Hitler was prepared to offer very tempting terms, allowing the British to retain their empire, but Churchill and his cabinet knew this was a peace that would not last. Hitler liked to picture the Anglo-Saxons joining their long-lost German cousins in peace and after repeated attempts to reconcile, he had to admit that a negotiated peace would not come. So Operation Sea Lion was invented. If the English would not yield of their own volition, they would have to be conquered. Sea Lion was a farce from its very inception. To begin with, conquest and occupation of the British Isles would be far more difficult than any operation yet conducted by the German military. It would require operational coordination between air, land, and sea, something the Germans had never before demonstrated an affinity for, or even attempted. They had no landing craft and no experience whatsoever in amphibious operations. A task that took the Allies at least a year of planning and preparation, in 1944, Hitler wanted to undertake in 30 days. It was a total pipe dream. Worse, an invasion of the island was totally unnecessary and unfeasible, but Hitler and his commanders were completely land-oriented. They had a very hard time grasping naval operations and war through attrition. Hitler wanted decisive actions with clear consequences. What was needed was a slow strangulation. With the combined German and Italian fleets and the British isolated in Egypt, the Axis certainly had a fighting chance of cutting off Britain from her empire. But they would arrive at this strategy too late. Precious time and energy was wasted on preparing for Sea Lion that could have been spent destroying Allied shipping and taking the remainder of North Africa. So in the summer of 1940, planning for Sea Lion went ahead. The army wanted to land 100,000 men, but the navy hardly had the vessels to move such a huge force. They contended that they would have to land the men in two successive waves, 24 hours apart. The army was aghast. They couldn't leave the first wave on shore for 24 hours or more without supply or reinforcements. Neither the sea nor the land services were truly interested in organizing this circus, so the baton was handed to Reichsmarshal Hermann Goering, who was as delighted to take over as he was ill-prepared. Placing the air marshal in command directly led to the Battle of Britain, for he believed that total victory could be achieved through air power alone. He fully intended to bomb the island into submission, but the English were preparing for everything. The island was arming itself. The men who had survived Dunkirk were rearmed and stationed along the coast with every weapon the army could find. Factories were now churning out aircraft, tanks, small arms, and ammunition around the clock. There were no delusions in Britain as there were in America and the British accepted their solemn duty to defend their island. On June 18th, 1940, Winston Churchill rose before Parliament and gave one of his many now-famous orations. He said before the assembled ministers, What General Wagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that, if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say, this was their finest hour. In the next installment, we'll cover their finest hour in the Battle of Britain.